Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, podcast listeners. Al Martin here on Making Data Simple. I am so thrilled that you found your way back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I have got a terrific guest today. I always have terrific guests, but I have another terrific guest. It's David Bunyatgan. Let me give him a quick lead in, and then we're going to jump right in. He is the founding CEO of Active Loop. I know that he has his own podcast, and I know that he listens to our podcast. Thank you. That is very much appreciative. The interesting thing is, David reached out to us, and you know we do a vetting process, as you might imagine. We were going through his history. I mean, it, it's it's very interesting. So we're going to have to dive into this, David. And that is, you know, he did research involving reconstructing the connectome yes. of the mouse brain. I don't think any mice were hurt during this process. Hopefully that's the case. But uh, so we're going to talk about that. That leads to, as he was in research, and I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but this is what really interested me, that you had, you know, so much unstructured data, extremely expensive, difficult to apply machine learning, analytics, et cetera, on. Then you decide to create Active Loop, a startup that, by the way, is, you know, in VC funding. And other, there's prominent Silicon Valley VC firms and angel investors involved so that you can uh, manage that unstructured data for deep learning applications. How did I do? That has been great, Al. Thank you very much for inviting me. And um, it's really a pleasure and honor to be here. Maybe I just gave a brief intro um, about myself before starting the company. So before getting into the company, I was... Yeah, yeah. Give us your experience, how you got here, and then leading up to what made you start the company. So basically, before starting the company, I was at the PhD program at Princeton in a neuroscience lab. And what we were working on is the field called connectomics, which is a new research direction in neuroscience that tries to bridge the gap between traditional neuroscience and psychology. In traditional neuroscience, you had researchers were focused on understanding how a single neuron or how a single cell was behaving. And then you have psychology that tries to understand the higher level of human decision-making. And there's a big bridge or gap between single cell understanding and how the functional brain makes decisions. And the goal of the connectomics is to bridge this gap by reconstructing the connectivity of neurons inside the brain and then understanding how, for example, the brain makes decisions or like how the learning algorithms behave inside the brain. That research has been led by my advisor, Sebastian Seung at Princeton. And we had a huge lab working on this. One of the interesting or exciting things that I got very excited about is that to be able to do this analysis, we had to run on mouse brains and a single sample, 1,000 of, well, of a mouse brain. And if you want to reconstruct, let's say, the full connectome or the full human brain, then it's like you have to get to reach to the single zettabyte, which is like 50 years ahead. Being a computer science in a neuroscience lab, our goal was to build these pipelines to make sure that we can go from the volumetric images to the graph by separating the neurons, finding the connections, and then later neuroscientists can take these graphs and then do research on top. And the problem that we were solving is was, what is the best way to process a petabyte scale dataset on cloud infrastructure? It was a huge cost for us, and our goal was to rethink how the data actually should be stored 
how it should be streamed from the storage itself to the computing machines. Should we use CPUs or GPUs? What kind of models to use for the inference? And those kind of insights helped us to start a company three years ago, get into Y Combinator, raise seed funding, and start working with early customers to, to help them to be more efficient in terms of machine learning efforts. One of the customers we worked with, they had 18 million text documents. They had to train a machine learning model to take text and then put them into embeddings so they can run a very efficient search. Uh, we helped them to reduce the training time from two months to a single week by cutting computer and storage costs. We also worked with another company who has airplanes flying over the fields in Illinois. They collect a lot of, a lot of air image data, again, petabyte scale, storing on the cloud storage, and then stream, and then they had to train deep learning models to be able to classify what's the crop type here on this field or where there's a disease on the field or dry down area. So the farmer can actually go and check out the area on the field and then fix it. We help them to build the data pipelines there. And what we learned so far is actually the problem is not in the training or the deployment. It's sort of a solved problem. It's actually in the data sets, how the data is stored, how it's version controlled, how it's cleaned, transformed and piped into machine learning models. And if you look into like, hey, can I find a database for images, let's say? Actually, there's no database images. Like all the people, they all recommend in Stack Overflow, you search that, store all your data in a traditional MySQL or like SQL-based database, and then have additional column that points to the files on the file system or an object storage, which is pretty inefficient if you are training a machine learning model directly on that. And that's how it, everything got started. We said, okay, why not we open source a new format or a data store that can store unstructured data like images, video, audio, text, and very efficiently stream this from the storage to the computing machines as if the data was local to the machine as well without like, copying the data. So utilizing the network and being able to feed to the GPUs. Having said that, the way we store that is very native to the deep learning models or deep learning frameworks by talking to the same language like using tensors. So that's kind of a high level of like an overview of where I'm coming from, the insights and um, kind of the problems that we're solving at. All right, all right, I got it. Very impressive, very, very, very deep. All right, let, let me see if I can break it down though a bit. You, you gotta give me more on reconstructing the connectome of the mouse brain. How do you get there? I mean, and how do you know what the mouse is thinking, by the way? So <laughs> what is your uh, success criteria in, in that endeavor? So the mouse usually undergoes some experiment. When I talked to the uh, white lab researchers, they made sure that the mouse, they don't get any pain there. Mm -hmm. So that's like insured for sure. On the contrary, the mouse is undergoing some kind of an experiment. Let's say they are watching some visual cues on the screen while running. And then that ensures that you can actually capture the activity of each neuron while the mouse is undergoing this experiment. And then once it's done, have the activity of each neuron, and then you also build the graph. And you can correlate with activities and how they are connected to see what are the things you can infer. One of the very actually inciting or exciting things that we learned so far, like from that experiment, what you can prove out, is that there's a famous algorithm that all machine learning and deep learning, mostly deep learning models use, like backpropagation. It's actually not inside the brain. You can prove that. I mean, that has been known before, but this is one way you can actually prove out that backpropagation doesn't exist 
inside the brain. But more importantly, to get to answer your question is that when the mouse is watching some, let's say a video, and then you look into the visual cortex, which is the part of the brain that uh, is responsible for understanding the cues, like are they horizontal, like diagonals you see, or vertical diagonals you see, you can conclude actually when the neuron activates, the activation, what the mouse was watching at that time. And then you can start from this low level understanding, very similar to how you train machine learning models, to actually understanding how the brain works by making these very tiny decisions that sum up together to a larger decision. Okay, there's a, I mean, in humans, it's a face of human face or not. What is the end result of that research? Where did you land? What did you learn? What changes? How are we going to better society with that? Mm -hmm. I think this is our first stepping stones of understanding how the human like intelligence works. And the step that we were at is the first time we have been able actually, I think in 1980s, there was a research lab that took 10 years to build a full connectome of a, a, a worm like C. elegans. Like it's a very tiny worm that has 300 neurons. And now the researchers can actually simulate the motional part of these worms and see that you can actually show how they're moving. But that they took like 10 years to reconstruct only 300 neurons. Today, we are able to reconstruct 100,000 neurons in matter of weeks. But this is still, first of all, 1,000 times smaller than fully reconstructing a mouse brain and then another 1,000 times smaller reconstructing the human brain. The goal is to be able to understand the intelligence of how the humans make decisions in, in the expectation. Currently, the state is that we can fully reconstruct our fruit fly brain or 1,000 of a mouse brain. Do you think this has an opportunity to solve something like ALS in the future? In the U.S., we call it Lou Gehrig's disease, where essentially you lose control of your body. My daughter's best friend, her dad has this, and it's just discouraging to, to say the least. I mean, it's like he can think fine. He doesn't have control over his body. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if we could reconnect those neurons in some capacity in the future? I, I don't know. That's why I ask. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate disease. Uh, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong here and I'm not an expert in neuroscience, but actually that's more related to spine cord. I think um, it is too, yeah. But um, having said that, when we were discussing the viability of the research of what's the long-term problems is actually targeting Parkinson's disease and like either neurodegenerative uh, disease. Well, Parkinson is like, yeah, so that makes sense. I mean, that's where you can't control very similar, but I guess it would depend on the cause, right? It's got to be a neural connectivity issue is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And during this process, we actually do reconstruct the 3D anatomical structure of all neurons inside that area. So maybe that could also help with understanding what's going on wrong. But I know we're off topic here a little bit. But we'll make the transition. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, but I mean, this gets into your deep learning. I'm sure that's the roots of where we're going here. I mean, it's kind of like mapping the genetic sequence here. What do you think of the next step in the science are going to be? I mean, look, a mouse brain is very different than a human brain. Like you say, the size is completely different. When do you think that kind of discoveries will be possible in the human brain? There are some research labs that are already started to reconstruct some parts of the human brain by looking into very specific things. And for example, one thing that actually it's um, from uh, my advisor as, as well, like shared with us is, for example, there's a neuron that's responsible for detecting Jennifer Aniston 
for some inside a human. Could have been anybody, but they didn't <laughs> afraid of it. I got it. All right, keep going. <laughs> and there are other neurons that are responsible for detecting um, specific human faces, for example, or the, making these decisions. That has been done actually without connectomics research, but what this will allow us to be able to get the full picture how this decision is made, how when we see a human face, we okay, it's Jennifer Anderson or someone else. But we are 50 years away of getting first, not a, like a single full connectome of a human brain. And then you, you imagine that getting a single one is not enough. You ha have to have multiple of those to be able to understand the connections or the patterns in those connections. Did you say 50 years away? Yes, five zero. Wow. We single brain, I think, will need a zeta byte to be fully reconstructed. Well, that's interesting. All to recognize and figure out how we recognize Jennifer Aniston. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, <laughs> that's good. That's interesting. So that leads to your deep learning background, because we're looking at deep learning. We're, we're doing neuroscience here. Got it. But back up for me again now. Now you make the pivot. You ran into unruly data sets, a lot of unstructured data. Repeat the problem, if you will, in, term, in simple terms that you're solving. The problems that we have seen is that today, deep learning is bottlenecked not on the models, but on data sets. And not just about the size of the data sets, but also about the quality of the data. That has been always the case. How the data sets are stored, how they are moved from one location to another location, how they are version controlled. So you can do, let's say, time travel and then go back into a specific data sets for deep learning applications for images, video, audio, text. You have all the nice and great infrastructure for traditional machine learning, like statistical or like tabular data. Like you have today Snowflakes, you have Databricks, um, you had Hadoop and MapReduce and a bunch of databases. But this whole infrastructure is missing for deep learning applications. And we are building that. We are essentially offering a very simple API for creating and storing and collaborating on AI datasets of any size. We help you to rapidly transform and stream data while training models at scale. And at the same time, instantly explore and visualize datasets for AI. So those are the kind of the main value propositions that we do provide as a company. In short, is that saying, hey, I'm putting all sorts of unstructured data together real time and making it available for machine learning algorithms. Yes. Is that, mm -hmm. is that good or is it, did I, I shortchange you anywhere? I mean, there's, is it? In a high level, that's great. We are essentially a data store or data lake for AI. That's like a very high level uh, description. But more specifically, we take the unstructured data, we structure it and then pipe it into the ML models. That's what we do. I mean, everybody's trying to solve this problem. What makes what you're doing different enough that you say, hey, look, I'm going to go out. I can fix this better than anybody else. I've got the, the superpower to do that better and faster than anybody else. And then so much so that you get VC funding. What makes you different? The main thing that we have seen that like makes people exciting is the streaming. We can stream the data from a cold storage, like an object storage like S3, to the GPUs as if the data was local to the machine. So what this entails is the following, is that usually you look into the classical data solutions or like a distributed computing solutions like Spark or MapReduce and Hadoop. 
when you start a cluster of 100 or 1,000 machines, you have to preload the data to each of those machines before even the machine knows what kind of computation they're doing. With us, the machines doesn't have to know the data. The compute can decide on the fly what kind of data access they want. And what we all are to have for each of these machines, all of the machines are limited, let's say, with one terabyte of local SSD storage. They can have a petabyte scale view of all their data as if this data was local to the machine inside their memory. We abstract away all this memory, make it very simple to access and work with this data and um, process it at scale. Are you using Spark? Are you using MapReduce? Obviously, you're not. No, we are like a complete different way. Yes, we are saying that for this type of a data, there is a completely different path you can take to have the similar abstractions as you have with large uh, big data. Um, but now, instead of this big data elements, you have images or video or audio that you can query or transform or train as if they are like local on your laptop. I got, I got what you're saying. I just don't know how you're doing it. Maybe that's your secret sauce. But I mean, can you shed any light on uh, how are you making that transition? And the other thing that's going through my head while you're talking about it is like, how do you make sure there's one source of the truth of the data? Are you cleaning the data as you're making the transition? Are you doing anything with bias? Or are you letting the machine learning algorithms take the bias? I mean, for you? I mean, I'm trying to figure out what the data looks like. Well, how you're getting it there and when the data looks like once it's there. Mm -hmm. First of all, our core solution is open source. So anyone can read the code and understand what we are doing. But basically, we have three assumptions. The first assumption that you have a storage cluster and the compute cluster physically in the same region. The second assumption is that how the data is laid out or one of the sweet sources we have is like how we lay out the data on top of a storage layer. And the third assumption is that when you run uh, machine learning training or transformations, the computation knows beforehand like the pattern of the access of the data. It doesn't know which element exactly is going to access, but roughly knows how I'm going to access this. If you have these three assumptions, then you can actually build a, a solution or a layer or abstraction for each of these computers to have this petabyte scale view that you can efficiently stream the data to computing machines. Where we excel very well is the second point, of course, because the first one is just physical infrastructure. We don't have too much control there. The second one is that how we lay out the data. And what we do is very, like, I mean, simple is that we take, let's say you have million images and you have also million labels. We take this million images, combine them into a single array or uh, we call it a tensor. And then we take this million by 512 by 512 by three tensor and then put them into the chunks and then store them on an object storage. And we do the same with labels as well, with the metadata. Instead of treating this as a metadata, we actually treat it as a separate array or separate tensor. And then we store this on a data storage there as well. Now, when a deep learning model wants to access this data, he doesn't think about, okay, I have to write this boilerplate code, write, get the data into my format, into the same specific shapes, and all this like transformation that you have to apply. He can directly say, okay, deep learning is basically learning a mapping function that goes from one tensor to another tensor. And that's what it does. So it makes it very simple and efficient for deep learning models to run on, on the data once it's structured. So let me ask you this. Are you using a database or no database? You're storing it in your own proprietary format. 
we have our own proprietary format. We don't use any database. We store the data either on a file system, so it's like above, like some layer on the operating system, or we store the data, which is very efficient, on an object storage like S3. So we run everything on top of S3. That's our, like, above, below that we don't go into to low levels, um, lower level. Above that is like our own responsibility, essentially. So tell me how the deep learning model references your layout, the file system, uh, object storage. Is there anything unique to the machine learning model to make sure that you're using the layout that, as you've, you've outlined it? We made it very simple for data scientists, machine learning engineers, not to worry about this. So they can use their favorite tools like Jupyter Notebooks. They can use their favorite deep learning frameworks like PyTorch or TensorFlow. And they act as if they are acting with a data set that's local in the memory. They don't worry about this petabyte or 100 terabytes or the data where it's stored, how it's stored, and version control and transform. We provide them a very simple API that just plugs and play into their training model without modifying the training code. It's a simple data loader that they can run on a Jupyter notebook or they can run on a uh, Vim or uh, Emacs or VS Code, uh, however they prefer to train their machine learning models, and then just use it. Our open source tool is just a Python package. They do pip install hub easily, and then now they can import hub and then access the data set from any location, either on the cloud or on their local machine. And we do make sure that it's very simple and easy to access, but at the same time, it is performant and can scale to larger data sets. So you said three things. It was physical infrastructure, which that'd be like S3 or whatever. I mean, so, okay. Lay out the data. That's where you come in. Open source, but more efficient and has an ability to pull in unstructured data. Mm -hmm. The deep learning model, no format, no transformation. It can just worry about the, the mapping functions, et cetera. So it, it's taken away a lot of the work from the data scientists. So what's the third one again? Mm -hmm. The uh, third, thir third one, academically, it's called data obliviousness. But basically what it means is that you can you know the pattern of the access of the data beforehand, and you can start prefetching the data. Like the same way as you're, let's say, watching a movie on Netflix. When you watch the movie, you know, okay, it's a time series, and you're going to like watch after the first second and the second, for the second second, and the video player can buffer beforehand, before you start watching it, the video like uh, a few seconds before you start watching the frame. And the same happens in the code in machine learning. And you, you can think of us as like you have uh, Netflix. Before that, everyone was using a blockbuster to copy the data, to copy the DVDs to one location and then watch the movie in their local home. Now we can actually stream this data to your, to your home and you can train models directly there. Prefetching, is that also in your solution? It, yes, it's part of the open source. There's a, um, the prefetching, when I say prefetching, there's like more lower level details there. How do you do the prefetching when the data access is randomized? How do you cache the data on a local machine? And there's multi-layer caches that you use so that for the GPU, there's not any different. There are a lot of lower level details there as well. But yes, that's prefetching and the data layout are two main components to all of this abstraction. If you can provide such an abstraction on the data layer, then on the compute layer, you can it, this enables to have to think about a cluster as a single unit. Now you can run a transformation or a training on a huge data set. Don't worry about the scale of the cluster, similar to the promises that what Spark or MapReduce has been giving to the um, classical data scientists. 
I got to believe there's folks that are listening that are going to go, oh, Al, you know, Spark does this. They may do it different, but just go use Spark. Uh, what are the naysayers going to say? I mean, tell me the naysayers and tell me why they're wrong. Well, first of all, I feel like, I, well, I think that Spark is a great technology and I know the creators uh, as well. And um, they are very good at processing tabular data, structured data. Like you might have the data sets in Parquet format or um, their RDD is a very good abstraction inside their memory, but they are limited to the specific use cases they are operating at. And they also have the Spark ML, which is a great tool for deep learning and machine learning toolkit, but it lacks like the native, I want to say like nativity or um, the PyTorch and TensorFlow are not native to Spark ecosystem. They have been trying to solve this problem for a long time, but it's still, when you talk to the data scientists and people who use actually, let's say um, the managed version of Spark, they use PyTorch and TensorFlow without the Spark ecosystem. They just directly train the model on top. And one of the core reasons we believe in all this is that how the data layout is very important to specialize for deep learning. The big difference here is that, hey, you have a different nature of the data. How this should be stored should be different and how this should be computed is also should be different. What have you named this technology or is it just Active Loop, the same name as the company? What's the name of the technology that you have? The, the open source name is, has a very generic name. It's called just, uh, if you go to Active Loop AI slash hub, that's the, um, the GitHub that you can find out the technology itself in. Uh, we are thinking of new names and we'd love to get your thoughts on how it would be better to name this. No better way to the listeners out there. You guys, you know, you listen, you tell us what you think the name should be. Keep it G rated, please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, so do you think this technology can essentially replace Spark and MapReduce? This is creates MapReduce or Spark for unstructured data. So it's not replacing, it's creating, a, it's like a different thing. It's creating a tooling infrastructure for a new type of data that hasn't been very well specialized in. But Spark works on type of unstructured data, is it not? Uh, I was just jumping on a call from yesterday from uh, a demo of Spark. And uh, after many, many queries, they treat this as like blobs or files. And the whole database world, I was reading as well by the last week in the Oracle history. And if you look into the Oracle history from 1984 to 2001, they actually had a support for images, video, audio in their database, in their RDBMS. But the big problem is that they are also treating these blobs. First of all, unstructured data is more structured than the structured data, like in its form. Secondly, treating as a blob, I feel you lose a lot of context there. And that's where deep learning models excel because they don't treat this as blobs, they treat it as tensors. Of course, let's say a model doesn't care if it's an image, video, or audio, what it cares, it's like an array of digits, but it has the structure embedded into the input of the model. So deep learning models, they take tensor in, they put tensor out, that's it. They don't care about the nature of, like, okay, the original nature of the data, but they don't treat as blobs. By, by blobs, I mean uh, a binary uh, array of, uh, basically binary data. So you're getting away from the, the typical way of storing uh, like a video or whatever in, in a blob and, and storing it in, in a different f fashion. So what, you know, give me an example of what you will get. The main thing that you get additionally is that 
you now you can index the data. You can easily access any part element as if it was an array on your local machine. That like one access that makes it very simple to do. But more interesting, you can let's say you have a tensor of video. You can actually create an adjacent tensor of labels. You can create another adjacent tensor that has embeddings. And now you can run a query. Can you give me all the frames that have a bicycle in front of a car during the night? And I want to retrain my model on this data. And this enables you to very efficiently query this data without treating as blobs, but actually treating as a more structured data and generate a new data set you can train on, or you can run a very quick search on top of this data. Those are the capabilities that are lacking in the traditional databases that we are going to enable. You said something that caught my ear. Unstructured data is more structured than structured data. Is that yes. what you said? Right. So, to tell, so tell me more. So usually with tabular data, you have data that's missing, that you have like nouns, you have uh, illegal data, different D types and, and so on. With unstructured data, what we call like images, video, audio, text, you know the shapes of the data. It's like, you know the same image is 512 by 512. You know that in each element, you're gonna expect a pixel there. It's not that in one pixel gonna be none. I haven't seen an image in my, um, like I'll say short, uh, career of over the last five years in computer vision, there's an image with a non-pixel in, in, the, in the middle. Like, you know, the compressors, com compressing algorithms won't let you to do. There's another big problem there. 10 years ago, the data scientists, the way where they were storing the data, like the CSV file, now you have parquet format, which makes it very compressed, columnar way of storing the data so you can access the data very efficiently. You can't do the same with uh, unstructured data like images because you have all this long lost history of compression and compressing algorithms like JPEG and PNG that are already there. You can just come up and say, hey, I'm gonna make the images like 10 times better compressed than what has been done before. That there are certain use cases, let's say um, an error images and the compression algorithm or the way to, the data is stored hasn't been changed for the last 20 and 30 years. What you can do instead is actually you can quickly tweak the, the layout of the data and how it's stored and also the compression algorithm and then save 30% storage there just for free. There's another like an initiative we have at ActiveLoop that actually says, okay, we have a petabyte scale data set. This is the only data that our customers are going to use it. What is the best compression algorithm there? Or can we actually find the best compression kernel here for this data set to compress the best way? Because we know the data distribution of the data, we can come up with the best way of storing this data. So now you see actually machine learning or deep learning helping the data infrastructure to store, to figure out the data layout, which gets more exciting. Instead of humans writing these heuristics, now you have a learning algorithm that decides the, how the the, the, like the tectonics should be uh, shifted in, inside uh, the data layer, which, which makes this um, field even more exciting for me. There's with so much innovation there. What problem, though, would you say you have not solved in all this? Well, uh, one of the biggest problems that we are trying our all best and here as well is convincing the world that, hey, storing files or blobs is very inefficient. And you should move to um, like a tensor way of storing the data. To be honest, we are not the only one pushing this initiative. And we are happy there are other uh, field members there as well. 
But what we want to tell everyone in the world and makes the pie bigger is that there is a better way of storing unstructured data and treating them as tensors is one way that we are proposing. And eventually, like whatever wins is going to be the kind of the best way for storing unstructured data sets and we're rooting for it. So why do you think convincing folks is so difficult? Uh, when you are starting a shift in um, a lower data infrastructure layer, it's like you have people who are used to all the bias they have for the last 20 and 30 years. Changes are uh, like you, you only get very few people who say, oh, let me try this, excited or no, I don't, and they, I don't care about this. Uh, we have been doing this for a long time. We don't want to, we don't want to change. So there's like every change uh, starts from very small few believers and then you start shifting people one by one and until it gets to the masses and um, gets to the, uh, I don't know, the cr crosses the chasm basically. You mentioned switching gears a little bit on you. You mentioned you were working with agriculture. Did you say that earlier? Yes. Uh, well, our customers are AI companies in agtech field, for example. Do you uh, you know? Can you mention any of those? Or are they? Yeah. One of one of the partners we have is Intelinear. They we have a, a case study with them. They work in Illinois, uh, Illinois state. They collect a lot of uh, early and help farmers to better diagnose um, their farmlands using computer vision and aerial imaging. What's the name of that company again? Intel in Air. Intel in Air? Yes. The reason I asked that is because I have actually got a friend that just sold. His company is called Farm Mobile. And he did much the same. Essentially, he put essentially IoT devices on tractors, et cetera, so you can identify the yield in the field, it's almost exactly what you were describing. You know, things can be too wet to, you know, they, they could, you know, anyway, you, you get different yields for different reasons, depending on weather, depending on the, the soil that also dictates, but that, that also dictates what seed you put down. Do you put the expensive seed here? You put the expensive seed there. I mean, it's a big, big deal. And how are you, how does your company help with this? We help with that data layer with the data storage. They still create their own proprietary best models to be able to, in this case, let's say classify or predict the crop yield. That, that's their kind of core business. We help them enabling this to do very fast. And so you take all the data from very similar, it must be like taking the data uh, from these IoT devices placed mm -hmm. on the, the, the machine, you form the layout of the data, as you, as you mentioned, already on infrastructure, and then say, here it is, and then they put their ML, their models on top of that. Yes, yes, high level, that's the case. And one thing to mention here is that this is, I feel it's at least what I've seen, maybe I'm super young here, but first time seeing how AI is enabling the farmers to better farm their lands. And this is like the early days of how Machine learning, deep learning, what we have been working as a, like a research community over the last 50, 60 years is enabling these traditional fields to be better at what they are doing now. And not only we see this in agtech or agriculture, but also we see in the healthcare, how diagnostics from chest cancer research to, um, like, I don't know, from understanding how the brain works is shifting the healthcare industry and we see this like repeated in these old traditional uh, areas and industries um, across the land, which is very exciting. 
where can folks go find out more about you and or uh, your company? Yeah, so just go to Actable.ai. Uh, feel free to follow uh, my Twitter handle or find me on LinkedIn as well if you want to reach me out. This is terrific, man. Terrific technology. I'll put that in the show notes. Just a couple more questions before we break. But this company's what, three and a half years old? Something like that? Yes, yes. So, uh, and you went straight from academia to uh, the company, right? Right. Unfortunately, I haven't finished my PhD. I dropped it out. Uh, <laughs> I took a leave of absence, which Princeton was very kind of providing to me. And finally decided to put all my energy into the company with the goal of having higher impact than going into the academy. But that's one of the decisions I feel that either way I choose, I'm going to regret. You won't regret it if you turn out to be the next spark. I mean, I, so, and you can always go back at some point in time. But that was one question I had for you. So you're the, the CEO, right? So that means you've got to do a lot of the funding. You've got to you know, talk to venture capitalists. You're very technical. How do you maintain both? First of all, I have a very um, good team who is helping me, supporting to nail down the story and make it as simple as possible. So uh, no, a usual person can understand, which I'm not the best at doing this, to be honest. That's my, not one of my weaknesses. Well, you either. sound great, just so you know. You <laughs> said, they've done well for you, though. Okay. And they help me out with um, um, the decks and so on. But also at the same time, I feel like for this, especially in data infrastructure companies that you're looking into startups, you want to have the CEO of the company also to be the tech lead that defines the technology, at least in the early stage. And once you start scaling, then maybe uh, shifting, um, or getting a better kind of CEO in, uh, in more in the harvesting mode where you can focus on sales and product that that could be a better solution for the company itself. Is there anything that makes you not able to sleep at night? I mean, I mean, I know it's a new company. I don't know what your exit plan is or if there is an exit plan. Talk to me about all that, I mean, if you could. I mean, just give me your thoughts. Where's your head at? <laughs> well, there's so many problems. It's like when you are doing an early stage startup, is everything can, you're like basically trying to build an airplane while you're flying and so many things can go wrong. And fortunately, we have a great team solving all different aspects. One of the challenges we do have is actually finding really good senior engineer talent who has a lot of experience, decade experience on the the problems we are solving, but doesn't have the biases, which is very tricky. Cushion uh, both have passion in distributed systems and machine learning and deep learning infrastructure. That's one of the challenges that we are having today is like, how can we um, get and build a team, of course, without having all the billion dollars of funding to build this. So, how are you finding talent? Are these people that you've worked with uh, or you know, friends in college? Or, I mean, some How are you finding the talent? Some of them are friends. Some of them came through actually Y Combinator Network, which is a great um, network as well there. Uh, we just ramped up our, our hiring processes, got an internal recruiter, um, working with external recruiters to, to add the, um, to the pipeline. Another um, also solution is like open source talent, those people who contributed. One of the engineers that joined us three months ago he has been number two contributor of Keras, which is a very famous library. That's another, and he's based in India. So that's like another great uh, um, team member who joined us. That's the kind of the challenge we are at, like how we can um, boost our team with um, senior in, like principal engineers or architects to build such a solution. 
All right, two more simple questions before I let you go. One is back to the pictures you were talking about when you're looking at Jennifer Aniston. Uh, but uh, the, uh, why is it that when you turn pictures upside down, the human brain can't recognize them anymore? Surely you, you went through that when you were going with neuroscience. That's the interesting part because to make it this, like your human, like the, the, there's a single cell who makes the decision, hey, I, I think this is Jennifer Aniston. The decision is based on, they have in average 10,000 other connections giving input signal to make a decision. And you look into other neurons and there are some neurons that are only like looking into this low level features or brows or let's say eyes and how like the, the face is shifted. And when you turn around, those neurons that had to fire when they have seen the special low-level cues, they don't fire. So the neuron that makes the decision if it's Jennifer Aniston or not doesn't have the input to make this decision. So simply looking at these low-level features, the neurons fail. And this happens a lot with um, artificial neural networks as well. Wow. All right. I got one more question. I've only got 6% of my battery. So if something cuts you, you'll know what happens. But um, so look, in all this, I, I got to believe you have your hands full, but what do you do for fun? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, I play tennis. It's one of the things I drive road trips. That's also exciting. And also the martial arts, trying yeah. to have that. But the, be the best energy I get I energy from is actually traveling, traveling to different places, like really like switching the location. Is, is very helpful. Like out of country or in country? Both. In, Both. in country and out of country, especially. Well, traveling's um, been hard as of late. I would <laughs> yes. So I was like in a deep <laughs> depression mode. <laughs> well, David, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Very informational. Uh, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for being here. We'll, like I said, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll get this out. I wish you the best of success. Thank you very much for hosting me. It was great conversation really enjoyed it thanks again and thanks to all the listeners out there uh, i'm humbled by how many listeners we do have greatly appreciated and as always give us feedback on al martin talks data at gmail.com like david we'll get great presenters on so uh, thanks again and i'll see you on the podcast thanks for listening to the making data simple podcast where we make data fun be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.